This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hey everybody, this is Dr. David Perodin and welcome the Safety Doc Podcast. A huge thank you to John Grant and the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California, for airing the Safety Doc Podcast Monday through Saturday, 2 p.m. PST. Again, Monday through Saturday, PST at the405media.com. Also, a thank you to Jim Mallard and Radio and Podcast for airing the Safety Doc podcast. Again, radio and podcast.com. Appreciate the syndication of the show. Definitely getting new viewers and new audiences. So we've had a very unusual spring again in Wisconsin, kind of this perpetual flood. My community experienced flooding close to the Wisconsin River. My community is adjacent to the Wisconsin River. Um, parts of the community flooded actually that I had never seen flood before in my 17 years living here. Areas that I typically will bike through in summer were flooded. So um, that's quite a ways from where I'm at. And I also live on top of a hill. So nothing happening like that here. But we also had a winter weather advisory just a day ago. That is very unusual for the end of April. Only a few flurries, nothing significant. But still, I, my friends listening and watching, am ready to get my bike out. I'm ready for summer. So I want to spend today talking about the Notre Dame Cathedral fire. And I was going to make this show largely about the Taurus, T-O-R-U-S, or self-similarity, meaning we ex- expect today to be similar to how yesterday was, and we expect tomorrow to be similar to today, T-O-R-U-S, the Taurus. We all operate within this Taurus. So when we're not in the Taurus, when something significant happens, whether it be the 9-11 attacks, or whether it be the burning of Notre Dame that moves us outside of our Taurus. And there are very specific reactions that humans have when they are removed out of their Taurus. Basically, they fight vigorously to get back into the Taurus. But as I was assembling this podcast outline, um, just more and more questions came up about the actual fire at Notre Dame, and I want to talk about that today because there's there are inaccuracies, and they're becoming curious, and they're just not adding up. Um, obviously, if I titled this Notre Dame Cathedral Fire Conspiracy, uh, that would be quickly kicked off of social media, and I wouldn't be getting any traffic for it. So I've opted not to do that, <laughs> but although we're going to talk about that for a while, and it's become a point to where I know I'm on to something because I have a network um, of people in protected services who will very cautiously talk about things with me. I brought this up and they said, no, we're not going to talk about it. So when that happens, you're typically over the target, meaning there's more to this than meets the eye. So first of all, a few inaccuracies Um, that stand out to me with this cathedral fire, April 15th, the cathedral fire, 
Um, so the first thing that stands out is I haven't been able to find any renovation plans for the Spire. Haven't been able to go online, things that might have been posted in the paper, things a day or two after the fire, saying here is the Spire, here's the actual part where the, the work was being done. Now we saw all of that intricate scaffolding, which amazingly seemed to survive virtually intact, although the fire was beyond 2,000 degrees and don't know how that happened, but um, no diagrams, no photos of the actual work being done on the steeple. That just strikes me as odd. It strikes me that an investigative reporting team the next day would have been able to pull these off of archives. There had to be proposals right into the city or requests for proposals for different contracting firms to say, yes, I can do this or, or no, I can't do this. And even surveillance um, or uh, photos taken through drones, whatever. But, you know, they're saying that they're giving the impression that this, this entire structure was sealed off. You know, that you had the lead, the lead roofing and then the, the plating, which was on the spire. But the reality is, if you're working on the spire, you're removing this plating, right? And underneath the spire, that's just access down into the wood attic or the or what do they call it the uh, the forest because it was the nearly thousand year old tinder dry twelve by twelve inch beams included in addition to that dust. So you know we've heard of grain explosions, grain granary ex explosions, grain dust. Um, definitely dust could be a precipitating factor to a fire like this. But anyway, you needed to expose the spire in order to work on it. So my thought is that there definitely were areas of the spire which were exposed, wooden pieces, wooden sections, and that, that would have also exposed down into the attic. But we don't hear about this. So very bizarre that, that those diagrams, photos, so forth haven't come forward because obviously they're there. And when you are working on a, an historic restoration, you would be taking a lot of photos beforehand to make sure that whatever you restored um, went back to the preconditioned state as best as possible. This is very weird that these images haven't come out. So... Um, we also have, and I called this the day after the fire, um, in a discussion, I said, you know what, um, the lead roof likely vaporized because lead melts at 615 degrees Fahrenheit and it vaporizes at 752 degrees Fahrenheit. The fire exceeded 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's a little bit different. Let's let's think about this for a moment. If you have wood, wood doesn't vaporize, wood burns. Wood becomes ash, wood becomes smoke, tiny particles of wood, and that's carried away and largely benign, right? You know, forest fires, things like that. But um, so you wouldn't expect that wood just changes state. It completely is destroyed. It, it comes back down into molecular level. Not the same thing though with lead. Lead becomes vaporized, it becomes airborne, or else it melts. It drips down into the cathedral. But if it's vaporized, it's being carried away, and the wind is being attached to particles of, you know, the, these very finite, you know, particles of smoke. Um, and it's traveling some distance. Um, also, it's saturating the air in that air in that region close proximity to the cathedral. So we have, okay, we have a total of 500,000 pounds of lead that were used to make up the, uh, basically, the tiles on, on the ceiling, right? The external protection for the, the attic. So the roof, right? The roof of the cathedral is made out of lead. And, and the lead's gone. Whether the lead had melted into the cathedral or whether it vaporized, a significant portion of lead vaporized. 
So that lead became airborne and it probably situated close to or in proximity to the cathedral, but there were some pretty strong winds going and also this 2000 degree and you're already from an elevated position as the smoke comes up, you know, that's why chimneys on power plants are always so high. The smoke traveled for a while before it would have dissipated and come back to earth, whether that be in Paris or who knows where. So we have 500,000 pounds of lead vaporized airborne, at least a big chunk of that. And this is starting to remind me all of a sudden of the 9-11 workers, the 9-11 site workers in New York, where immediately they weren't showing symptoms, but within a short amount of time, they were showing respiratory neurological symptoms. And then now years out, those are very well defined in some of those instances resulting in permanent disability. This is something I'm going to say right now. My belief on the Notre Dame Cathedral fire is that the biohazard implications of that will be realized over the next two to three decades, and they're going to be significant. And I believe we will not only relate, but correlate deaths back to this, which will be in the tens of thousands. The workers, the firefighters on scene um, fighting that fire, the um, priests, the, the, the team of what hundreds of people going in to the cathedral to rescue artifacts and bring those out, not wearing protective gear, um, they are going to definitely be subjected to high lead levels. And again, my thought would be if there was a you know, exhaustive diagnostic done on these individuals, you'd find immediately that they have elevated lead levels in their blood, in their tissues, and that that is probably going to be very difficult uh, for them to handle over the upcoming months or years or decades and could also leave the shortened life. I think we have a huge issue here. And this whole billion dollars to renovate the cathedral, um, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen, folks. This might become an issue of abatement, of lead abatement for the facility that could exceed billions of dollars just for lead abatement. I meant, again, we're talking 500,000 pounds of lead. I had read an article somewhere, and people were in, in proximity to the cathedral were noticing that this dust on countertops and things like that um, resultant of the fire, and and it was mentioned, well, there could be lead in this dust, so use like a wet rag to wipe it around, down and throw out the rag. I'm thinking it's not quite that easy, right? And we know that in America, the EPA states that 400 parts per million of lead in bare soil is is the absolute level for children to play. You know, once once we see that, we get into a hazardous level. So that's not much at all um, in consideration of the proximal area to the Notre Dame Cathedral. So I think we, we have a crisis that is on our hands. I think people know about this too. And also why certain channels of communication that I work through have been not exactly shut down, but I'm receptive enough to know when people are telling me um, who, are, who are higher up and who have the connections are saying, no, we're not going to talk about this now. So obviously there's a, an awareness, but how do you deal with this? How do you deal with something in a population-dense area such as Paris, 3.3 million? Now, Chernobyl, for example, um, you know, Chernobyl basically had the, has the exclusion zone. You can't go there. You can't go there actually for 20,000 years as a human and settle and live. Now, my guess is there'll be technologies that will shorten that duration. But right now, you know, that's that's a zone which is off limits to humans. You couldn't do that to Paris. You can't. So you have to deal with what you have. What you have right now is a significant saturation of lead throughout Paris. Now, I'm saying this because it's. I know it's obvious. I know that you had 500,000 pounds of lead on this roof, most of it vaporized as anybody, I saw the clouds. You know this only travels so far before it starts to cool and then bring itself back down to earth. Um, 
So we have some significant issues which we need to deal with. Um, very, very frightening. And I, I don't know how much uh, diagnostics will be done, how many tests will be done of the soil, of, of different sample sites, of different blood tests of people living proximal, who have participated in the rescue, the firefighters. Um, and again, some of these things aren't going to manifest for decades. So that's a whole other part of this. Um, again, you cannot treat Paris as if it was Chernobyl. You can't just evacuate and seal off an exclusion zone. So you can't even really mention this because it could create such chaos, such disruption of being that you could actually destabilize uh, Paris and destabilize France, right? I mean, you, you could do that. So my thought is that there is an awareness of what is happening, what is unfolding right now. Uh, I, I would say there is a very good chance there will not be a remediation of the cathedral you know, possibly there would be some decision to save some parts of it and scrub it down. Um, I don't know, but we know Superfund sites, you know, billions and billions of dollars. And right now we have a site with um, hundreds of thousands of pounds of lead, not only in, in the site, but in proximity to the site, polluting waterways, walkways, soil. This is horrific, folks, and this is all going to unfold. You're hearing it here first. Actually, I wish I would have made a blog post the day after saying, yeah, watching this and watching the way that it burned, um, we had a lot of lead go airborne and a lot more than, than you know what I personally would feel comfortable with in a typical fire. Um, and all of that lead had to end up somewhere. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. You think that your client, one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the world, is secretly a vigilante who spends his nights beating criminals to a pulp with his bare hands? And your plan is to blackmail this person? So the cover story for this whole cathedral fire has been the cause is not known, but thought to be connected to the renovation work, which to me is like fairly obvious, right? <laughs> that statement, I, I, I don't think anyone questions that, right? That this is probably related to the renovation work. But what? Like, um, you know, now apparently there have been cigarette butts that have been found inside of the area where the spire collapsed in something like seven, I believe. Okay, I'm taking this from memory. But um, cigarettes found inside of the church, and there's an admission by some of the workers, apparently, or some of, of the um, companies saying, you know what, yeah, there was smoking that happened. Of course, everything is marked non-smoking. Um, and why would you do that? But yes, so that's really not a question, but then it's quickly dismissed of saying, well, but if you're smoking on the roof and the roof has, you know, this, this thick lead coating, you know, what's going to really happen? Nothing, right? Because it's not near the wood. But you did have work on the spire and the spire would have been exposed, which is wood, and exposure to the spire would have had exposure to the interior of the attic. 
And you would have had a lot of ventilation too. If you look at the way that structure was put together, there was a lot of ventilation in that attic. So it's not so much, you know, this this crazy argument where people come out and say, well, if you ever took a cigarette and you put it against a large timber piece of wood, what happened? Did it start the wood on fire or did it just go out? Well, it just went out. I mean, it doesn't have enough energy to start combustion. But what we forget is that there were numerous renovations to the attic, this wood attic, over time with additional wood being added, which were not as large a pieces, plus you had dust and sawdust. And so you you have a lot of things, and, and plus just dust in general that might have been um, activated by working on the spear, changing air patterns within that attic. Um, and that dust becomes uh, a potential ignition source. So this whole argument of, of just quickly dismissing the cigarette butts, which absolutely shouldn't have been there in the first place. Absolutely. So this identifies quickly a few things. One is you have these very strict rules that you're following and renovating an 800-year-old cathedral, which you're not following, right? If you're taking shortcuts here with allowing people to have cigarette butts on site, what else is going on? And then the second is you don't have stringent surveillance of the site. Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, what does it cost for a camera these days? I mean, I would want that just for liability. What if somebody, there was an accident? You know, that seems like that would make sense that you'd record the work site. um, And you'd also, you know, how many of these things now in, in the United States? I mean, they they build um, football, you know, stadiums, basketball arenas, do major renovations, and they put multiple cameras out in the public and log in and watch these things either, you know, in live time or every 30 seconds it refreshes or something like that. Seems like that would have been just naturally done here, but it wasn't. So that's odd. To me, that strikes as sloppy. Now, I'm going to pause just a minute and say I don't believe there's a arson conspiracy going on here or terrorism. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. So I'm not going down those roads because, again, um, that is not my um, cursory conclusion on this. I think this is negligence. So I want to make that up front. Now, there are some people who are starting to come out and say, I'm not so sure that this wasn't arson or wasn't terrorism. Yeah, I guess, whatever. But I think this was negligence, which is completely inexcusable. So we have the cigarette butt thing, which I'm not convinced that that shouldn't be ruled out as a cause. But I'm going to tell you why it was in just a little bit. We also have this elevator, which was installed to assist in the renovation of the spire, which we have virtually no details about that anywhere. No diagram of this elevator, um, you know, no photos of this thing. Again, which is just amazing because you know these exist, right? And you know there's probably video of this thing as it's being, you know, assembled and trialed. But as they're putting this elevator in, they're doing 200 amp service. So they're, they're having to give a lot of power to this. Now, one of the things is I used to have an electric leaf blower it had a heavy-duty cord on it, too. And I know after I ran that thing for a while, the cord would start to get warm. So it's very feasible to think that if you're running this elevator, which isn't native to that, you're running 200-amp service and up to the spire. And first of all, a spire is like a chimney, right? Spires ventilate it very well. And if you do get a fire going there, you're pretty much done. But um, you, you're introducing this, this system. So... Again, I'm thinking, to me, one of the two things, cigarette butts or this elevator system overheated the wiring. Um, It might have caused smoldering, whatever, and and then to a fire. That's where I would say that two things are going to actually come out. Um, So some of the other oddities of this Notre Dame response is the on-site inspectors or firefighters or whatever the hell they call them, I guess, um, who are 
charged with going up the flights of stairs, which take five or six minutes. If there is an alarm, which I don't think frequently there was an alarm, they had daily checks, right? But there were not like frequent alarms that they were checking out. So they seemed pretty passive at what they were doing. Now, I imagine this, if this is my job, I'm going up there and I'm walking with a flashlight, all right? And maybe even like you got the new heat sensor, you know, wand that you can have, which fire departments have, a few thousand dollars. And, and you're going through from one end of the, of the building to the other through the attic and then side to side kind of where it would make the cross. But that would be like your routine. Like you go all the way to the end, you do your inspection, you come back side to side and you come all the way back. So like you would do that and you'd have a flashlight and, and you'd be checking things out. And obviously you should be able to smell smoke, right? Or even if you had smoke detectors up there, they're, they're talking about how they updated the smoke detector system over time and stuff. Yeah, but that doesn't seem to play out, right? Because if you had smoke detectors, they would have identified um, this much earlier than, you know, you hearing the second alarm 20 or 30 minutes later going up and seeing nine foot flames, right? The smoke alarm would have picked that up a lot earlier. So, um, but anyway, this response by the inspectors is really passive. And I guess it points to a systemic flaw. Um, and the systemic flaw is that when you go up there and you're doing your investigation, it's just not this casual walkthrough. You go one wall from you enter all the way to the, to the end. And then you go through on the, the lateral, the side to side where the cross would be. And you're doing that with... Um, you know, high-powered um, uh, basically, what, high-powered floodlight, flashlight, handheld, you know, that would be charged. And, you know, why wouldn't you have had forward-looking look, infrared device to identify any hot spots? I don't, I, I don't know. It just makes no sense. Like, if this is your job, like that you wouldn't take this as serious as possible in an 850-year-old 12 by 12-inch timber attic system, which is extremely fragile. So I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. Maybe it's a cultural thing. You know, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a cultural thing. I just don't get it. So that could be the deal. But to me, this is extremely passive. It's a st systemic air where whoever was in charge of these inspectors should have been periodically going with them on these trainings and they should have very strict routine on these trainings. It, it, it sounds like a bus that has kids, you know, transport kids now. When you shut the bus off, it buzzes until you walk to the back of the bus and press a button on in the back. And the reason you do that is to make sure you don't have any kids in the seats. It should almost be that way on this the system, right? That once you start your inspection, you have to press like a button in, in all of these areas to indicate that you've you've been there and you've checked this out. Makes sense. This is just common sense. Any safety professional in the fire uh, mitigation field would have told them. And we're not talking massive amounts of money or this other part too, where people who were from Notre Dame were saying, you know what though. We couldn't do too much because then it mutilated. That was that was the word mutilated the the, the timbers. It would become too intrusive. I'm like, yeah, not that's a garbage statement too, because you progress things over time and to do some of these things wasn't that mutilating. To put some cameras up there, right? To put some cameras with LED lights for maybe a couple thousand dollars, like no. Okay, and this wasn't like the tourist part of things either. This was like your inner workings of this cathedral. So, so the mitigation efforts were completely inadequate. Um, and for years, for 100 years plus, you knew you could have put a standpipe um, next to the cathedral and basically had an irrigation system in the attic or in the spire or in the towers and um, how this works, so you have a standpipe, basically, and you can have multiple standpipes. You never have water, like, up in the attic where the, where the water sprinkler system is at any time except when you're charging it from the outside. Uh, 
So it's not like this system is going to somehow leak and ruin your roof, right? It's not going to happen. But what happens, and, and you have the River Sun close by, right? <laughs> so there's no excuse to not have a standing water pipe that actually goes right down to the Sun, and then you can charge it with a fire truck or charge it with an external pump and immediately get some water flowing. No reason why that couldn't have happened. But anyway, it didn't. Um, so that's a mystery. That's curious to me, this mitigation. You don't have the standpipe. Um, and you could have, you know, architecturally worked it in. And this whole thing, too, of like, would it, deter it would have deteriorated the aesthetics of the facility? Not really, right? You would have just seen it going up the side. You had four or three or four beehives on the top of one building. You paint it tan. You'd never know with the standpipe. No one is going to really focus on that. Plus it would have been, you could have done that on the side of the building and not on the front of the building. It's just a poor excuse. So um, this is when people know that they should have done these things before and then they didn't. So they try to excuse them their way out of it and it doesn't work. The other part is firewalls. So firewalls basically would be separating that attic into compartments. Um, think of it as a submarine. A submarine has bulkheads that you go through. It's the same philosophy you'd be applying to this. Now, the argument against firewalls was, oh, they would destroy the aesthetics and it would mutilate the wood. And again, I just don't see that. Like, um, And I have a firefighting background. I'm not speaking to this as an expert firefighter because I haven't maintained those credentials. But I do know that in the United States, you only need I believe um, a half inch of drywall to act as a, a firewall between a garage and a living residence. I did that. I had to do that in my house. Um, so, you know, I'm talking drywall. You could do something that would be more aesthetically uh, appropriate to this, but there is no reason you couldn't have put a drywall in that would have been minimally evasive. So in this whole length of a football field, maybe you put four of these um, firewalls in, and then you have a door that you have to open and close to get through each of them. It's not a locked door, but it's just a door. But what it does then is it's a firewall, right? As the, If something starts on fire in that area, it doesn't progress as rapidly because it has to work its way through the wall. The wall buys you time. And all of the old buildings, the old downtowns, like in my community, they have firewalls. So the buildings that were put up in 1890, the wall that would abut the neighboring building was done with two layers of bricks. And that was a firewall that created time and then also was less likely that the fire was going to jump that wall and go into the next building. So that's nothing new. Um, it could have been done very feasibly. It would have made complete sense to put in the firewall um, in different settings. And also at the base of the spire from internally that you would have had that sealed off maybe once or twice. And I think of going up to a lighthouse and how when you get to the top of a lighthouse, you have to enter through kind of like a metal sealed off area. Um, I think it's the same thing here that you could have sealed that spire off a lot better or even within that spire put some more fire breaks. It's interesting because like I've, I've, the more I read about this from people who have worked on the project in the past, like the spire or the attic, come forward and say, yeah, we did do some mitigation things. Like those were there. They're nowhere collectively mentioned, but like there were some things in place. But yeah, you could have done that. You could have put in these firewalls. Would have made sense to do that. So, um, and then of course, you know, better alarms, just cameras up there. And you're talking a camera that could have been, you know, the size of a thumb. Um, you know, it, you don't need much up there. So immediately, if if you have an alarm, you'd be able to get a complete visual of that attic from downstairs before it takes that five or six minutes for someone to go up there and confirm. Just crazy, right? In 2019, this makes no sense. We're talking literally a few, you know, 20, 30,000 dollars 
to greatly increase the security, the fire security of that roof area. Why wouldn't you do it? The other part too is like, you're running this gamble with this lead roof of at what point do we change this lead roof for something which is less toxic or non-toxic? Um, so motivations to stay quiet. This is where we're getting back into this Taurus, right? So we have this, this cathedral and immediately it's like return it to normal. So let's talk about motivations to be quiet about this about this cathedral fire. One is you have a billion dollars of funding which has already come in and nobody was killed. So these are two big factors. Nobody was killed. So you're not having that investigation and you have a billion dollars in the bank already to rebuild this. Now, if this becomes a scene of negligence, okay, um, because of the cigarette butts, um, then you this whole funding becomes in jeopardy. If this whole potential of a biohazard gets out because of the lead roof, the funding goes to jeopardy because the, where does the billion dollars go then? Does it go toward lead abatement of the facility in the surrounding area into some larger fund for people who are going to have neurologic ramif neurological ramifications of lead poisoning? I don't know, but there's motivation to stay quiet. The money's there keep the story quiet. So we haven't seen a solid story come out on this. There's not great investigative journalism. I don't think there is going to be until the hand is forced. And again, nobody was killed. So let's talk about the Taurus and how that relates to this cathedral fire. So the Taurus, there, there, there's five steps that come out to play here. The first one is typical. Day-to-day -day cathedral operations. This is what people want to see. They, they want to know that when they go to the cathedral, it's going to be pretty much the way that it was yesterday and, and or the way it was a week ago or when they went to visit it 10 years ago. It had been there for 800 plus years, right? So, and granted over that time, it had some significant changes, but, you know, all in all, it was still the same cathedral in the same location. There's something called confirmation bias in our memory. So, Confirmation bias, it's, it's actually it's the way that we perceive things, confirmation bias. So confirmation bias means we see things the way that we want to see them. So there are many documentaries right now on YouTube. You just go and you type in crumbling Notre Dame or, you know, uh, Notre Dame restoration, something like that. It's not about the fire right now. It goes back a year or two or three talking about the statues that fell off. Um, crumbling uh, walkways, um, architecture, things like that. They actually had what they call like a graveyard in back of the church, and it was covered in tarp, and it was everything that they call it fallen off the church, right? So it was in bad shape. It needed millions, if not a billion dollars in repair just to get it up to the standard that, you know, it had been degraded due to um, years of use and weather. So and pollution, I guess. But anyway, it's it's you have this confirmation bias. You go to see Notre Dame and you see it as this majestic structure. Even though some of the statues are are fastened right to the building, otherwise they would fall. And they fasten these things with like this tan um, you know, it's it's this ratchet um, nylon tape that you use to to put stuff onto a truck or car or something like that's tan. So like it kind of ma it matches pretty close. So if you're looking from afar, you're not going to really notice. But that's the that's the level that they were at of just trying to keep this thing from kind of disintegrating. Um, but your memory, your confirmation bias ignores that. It becomes very typical. There's also this thing called positive recency. And positive recency plays into confirmation bias. So confirmation bias means if you walk past something that's crumbling or, you know, you're examining the building, examining your pictures, and you, you see some things, um, you're, you're, they're just not going to register as an urgent concern or a concern. It's just part of Notre Dame is Notre Dame. It's majestic, and that's all there is to it. You just want to see the majesty of the structure. So that's what you're going to see. You're going to tune out the rest. It's very selective. 
Then this thing called positive recency, meaning that it stood for 800 plus years, it's going to stand another year. And what you saw, what you experienced a year ago when you were at Notre Dame, probably is going to be pretty similar to what is going to be there tomorrow, right? Or today. So it's this whole thing called the Taurus. You're the Taurus of Notre Dame. You get up, um, you open the doors, you hold the masses, people take their pictures at night, you turn on the lights for the facility. That's the Taurus that pretty much doesn't change, right? Except when you have a fire which destroys the roof of the structure and possibly compromises the structure itself, um, the stone, you don't know. Then we have a Taurus which has been altered. You know, when they're saying, we're not going to be able to get back in the facility for five or six years. President Macron coming on the air uh, less than a day after the fire. The, the place is still smoldering. He said, we will, we're going to open up tomorrow donations for this. In five years, it's going to be rebuilt. Okay, that's optimistic. It's actually the right thing to say, though, if you are a politician and you want to take people out of a chaos state because people are out of their Taurus. The roof is off the cathedral. They've seen this burn and the smoke and all of this. I mean, it's, been, it's crazy and it's gone and they can't get in it. They're in chaos right now when it comes to the cathedral and the cathedral being a marker for Paris and how unsettling this can be. But if you can come out and you can say, listen, we're going to restore things to a similarity. Now, you can never go back to sameness. And there is no such thing as sameness. Every day the cathedral changes. Every minute the cathedral changes. So you try to get back to similarity. So you make this, you know, outlandish statement, really, of saying in five years we're going to have it rebuilt and all that. No, it's not going to happen. Even the abatement, at that point, you have no idea how damaged the structure is, right? You don't know the next day if the engineers and fire department are going to say, listen, like it's cracked all the way down the walls and whatever, and we're detecting lead like crazy. You know, it's going to take months just to figure out where we're at and then put a proposal, but like abatement alone for the lead could be a billion dollars alone. Like, we don't know. But no, Macron makes the statement. Makes the statement you almost have to make in that role, right? You have that or you have the choice of saying, we are going to wait for tomorrow for the sun to bring in the experts to do an assessment to understand what we have before us as a structure to understand the root cause of this, not the direct cause, I mean, the direct cause is probably a cigarette or probably electrical wire. Yeah, you can deal with a direct cause. But the root cause was um, you just were very um, lazy with your processes for a deterrent system, whether that be nobody smokes on the site, um, whether that be a greater monitoring of any repairs, or, of course, if there is an alarm, that you investigate that to no question every inch of that attic before you come back down, not just the ole of the flashlight. And it's like, well, seems like this is a false alarm. We're headed back down. So, um, so yeah, and people want to return to their Taurus. People want to hear that. So he tells them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. He's been debriefed at a surface level. Fire department has said, listen, the towers are going to stand. Towers are okay. As far as the rest of the structure, we don't know. We don't know. It's got, we'll figure out in sunlight. We don't know. It's water saturation. We have no idea of structural integrity of the walls. Um, but, you know, we don't know. So Macron comes in. Towers are standing. So you've got that in your favor. And, of course, now you have a robust agenda that people can get behind it's a solidifying thing, right? And you restore people to a sense of a Taurus, which people are smart enough after a while to figure out they're not really back in a similar Taurus. They're still out in this chaos. Like their Notre Dame has pretty much been destroyed and is gone and will never return the way that it was. Um, so acknowledgement. So this this whole acknowledgement of, of uh, we talked about this before, but acknowledging that the structure is on fire. The moment when you're like, this this is beyond um, anything that we can handle. 
So you have this passive response to the first alarm. That's a systemic flaw. That's a root cause. And so until you actually get beyond that to recognize, to have this acknowledgement that, oh my goodness, we are no longer in the Taurus. We are in chaos. We have nine foot flames. That's acknowledgement. That that should have happened much sooner. That This is a huge secondary part of this is that this whole process to investigate this um, alarm, this initial alarm was flawed and, and just that you wouldn't have had a better system on place. So it's like Mount Vernon in the United States, right? They have a fire department right there. How do you not have a fire department one block away from Notre Dame, dedicated to Notre Dame? Like, how do you not do that? How do you not have an aerial and a pumper and sandpipes? I mean, how do you you just not do that? I, I just don't get it. And even the response of you don't have a direct alarm to the fire department, you have to confirm it, then call the fire department. Yeah, I get that, except when it's an 850-year-old relic, which kind of defines and provides stability to your entire country. But whatever. Okay, so you shift from this Taurus to chaos. So this, this was fluid and not a single event. So, you know, here's the thing. So the fire response becomes linear for a very, very short time. Linear is getting people out of the church, right, and calling the fire department. That's your linear response. Then it becomes completely nonlinear. Fire in the the spire eventually gets out of control. Fire collapses. The attic starts to collapse. The building is weak. And this is all nonlinear. It's all called working the problem. It's all Apollo 13. It's what you're presented with. At that point, you are in chaos, which kind of is liberating too. Like there are some good things about chaos. Um, The fact that chaos really uh, simplifies your choices. For the firefighters, you have the choice of, well, we can fight the attic system, which might salvage the attic, um, or we can save the towers. Um, we can't do we can't do both. If we if we're going to put all of our resources, by the time we get there, and we're so overwhelmed with what's happening with this amount of wood, plus, I mean, it takes too long to get the fire equipment there, and it's just it's crazy. Um, it's just such a slow response. So at that time, you have to make a choice: save or salvage the attic. Or save the spears. So you save this, or not save the spears. Save the towers. You save the towers, right? And and then you have to hope that the stone structure holds up. The part that you don't know is the stone is getting heated. The fire is two thousand degrees. So I remember barn fires where silos would glow red just from the radiant heat from a barn burning. So the moment you hit um, brick. Or, not, or mortar and stones, which are heated to thousands of degrees, and you're cooling those down with water, you're contracting them, you're condensing them. So that's the same effect that we have with um, in the United States uh, with Mount Rushmore. Mount, the, the devastation to Mount Rushmore on a micro level really is just freezing and thawing. As, as the, the structure is impacted by that. And you have this contracting and expanding which is going on um, throughout this entire stone structure. So every time you're hitting it with water and rapidly cooling it down, you're causing condensing, which is stressing the stone and this mortar. And the fire department's aware of that too. At some point, they're like, well, it's not gonna make a lot of sense to put water over here or over here for the fact that we're just going to weaken these these superstructures, uh, which are made out of stone and mortar. So, um, yeah, let's go on to assessment and acceptance. So the fire department, yeah, they, they realize once they get there, they don't have a lot of options. You know, they see what they can do with the resources they have, which wasn't much. Um, and you have to make a decision you know, what you're going to do. And it was to save the towers, which they did. So the fire department did a heroic job, but also um, a significant under, uh, uh, not sufficient amount of equipment in a timely manner at the site. And you also have some boats that pull up in, in the river, which are pumping 
but it's nothing like a New York City or Boston Harbor uh, fireboat, which why wouldn't you have that where you could literally be pumping, um, you know, 5,000 gallons a minute. Imagine if you could get that up to that structure and imagine if you could get that to a standpipe system. Here's the problem. I mean, you can do that under these situations. And if you're pumping um, from a fire hydrant, you know, that's 500 gallons to maybe 1,000 gallons. In a city like Paris, maybe 500 gallons, um, it's just not as robust. And if you overpump these systems, you can collapse them. You're not going to have that problem with like a fireboat. So again, just a shame. I saw fireboats tested up in the Great Lakes in the Superior Harbor of Lake Superior. Um, brand new fireboats. They have a company up there. And amazing what they could do, not only with the jets on the fireboat. They wouldn't have been able probably to reach the cathedral but the, the pumping capacity, you're talking four or 5,000 gallons a minute um, easily and consistently through these. And, the, and what they had down there, I was able to kind of do, again, whatever you can get from a picture on the Internet. You're not getting any type of report that's saying, you know, this is a 1,200-gallon-a-minute pump, 1,250, whatever. But they weren't, those were not the equivalent of American fireboats. Those were boats that I'm saying we're pumping between one and 2,000 gallons a minute um, late in this process, which is not a lot of water. Um, so again, you could have you could have had that substantially different. I'm, I'm guessing actually that a fireboat um, is probably going to be much more than 5,000 gallons um, a minute, like, a, like an American fireboat. But um, so you don't have the equipment. So this gets into this whole sentinel of deterrent not being, you know, it's a root cause, not being prepared for this. Um, so, but this, so you have this attempt to restore similarity. You can re never restore to sameness. I talked about this many times in my book. There's nothing that is ever the same. You have nine 1973 pennies and you put them on a table and you ask someone, tell me about these. And they're like, well, those are all the same. Well, no, they're not all the same. They never were the same because they're all made of a different material. They all have different patina, different scratches. They're the same only in that they are worth one cent. Otherwise, they are not same. They are similar. So it's similarity. So attempt to restore similarity. President Macron comes on. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to rebuild this. The pledges roll in in 24 hours because people want to return to the Taurus. It's very much ingrained to people to have the sense of routine of a typical tomorrow, which will be very similar to today. So, um, so yeah, so there's a lot of energy, like a lot of patriotism, right? Um and it's all gone be it in a little bit of time because you start to scope this out and it's like, oh, this is this is not happening in five years um, if it happens at all. But so um, people have a very urgent need to return to the Taurus. I talked about Taurus theory in my book, School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America. And actually, I, I believe I'm the only one that's talked about that in a capacity of school safety. Um, the Taurus. So we think of the Taurus of like a bagel, okay? So at any one time, we all have a bagel. We're somewhere in this bagel. We go around the bagel. So it might be we get up in the morning, we have breakfast, we drive to work, we do our work, we come home, that's rotation in the bagel. Now, if it's like a day where the weather's real dicey in Wisconsin here because of snow or something, we might do that routine, but we move a little bit toward the outside of the bagel. We haven't been in very often because, you know, it's snowy and and whiteouts and the roads are slippery. So that's very nerve-wracking for us. Um, or if you're not feeling well, if, if you're sick, you're moving to a different part of the, the Taurus. Um, so this is an event that took, Fran uh, took France and Paris and moved them out of the Taurus, rocketed them into a state of chaos. It's chaos. Notre Dame... Notre Dame burning is chaos. So you're going to fight to get back in the Taurus. People will fight, fight, fight to get back in the Taurus. Um, people in a, in a school shooting situation, for example, if they 
teachers are are evacuated from the school after a school shooting event. Um, their Taurus is that school setting. They expect that they will be able to go back in in a couple hours, retrieve a per, you know personal belongings, a coat, car keys, whatever, go home and go back to their Taurus of their day, which is their home life as best they can. And when they're told, no, this is a crime scene, you can't go back in, you can't get your cars, you can't do that, they go crazy, they go wild because they can't restore into the Taurus. People will fight, they'll plead to get back into the Taurus. I was involved in a car accident in January, and actually at a time when I was deep into studying Taurus theory. So I knew the accident was unfolding in front of me, and as I started to go into this uncontrollable skid, I recognized, I knew it was going to crash. I knew that, and I had accepted that, and the vehicle was crashed, severely damaged, destroyed, totaled out, um, and I processed through this. I was in, a, in chaos because this vehicle had been destroyed. My means, my body had been physically um, jolted, um, you know, bruised and everything like that. But I also knew I needed a vehicle. I knew where my Taurus lies. And uh, basically, the next day, um, I had another vehicle, bought a, another vehicle, acclimated to that, took care of myself, quickly got back into a sense of similarity the best I could. And that was very healthy to not stay out in that chaos area any longer than I needed to. Now, granted, had I been severely injured, I would have been in this chaos state for a longer period of time, which would have actually become its own kind of Taurus state, um, and then hopefully return to something similar to when this pre-chaos state happened. It's a lot to think about here at the end of a podcast, right? So um, let's wrap it up, though. So we have all these, we have these architectural competitions which I think are just insane. Like, how should we re redesign the spire in the attic? And you're going to see this push, obviously, by historians and saying, you know, we want it to go back to what it was, at least that it looks like it did. We can use modern materials and we can build it so it's less likely to burn up again. If you were to build it back exactly like it was, that'd be completely stupid, right? You wouldn't want to put that much timber back into the attic of a structure, not in 2019, if anything, you know, steel or some composites or something that's not going to burn, um, at least like that did. So the structural challenges, which come out to be completely weird and wacky. Let's make it all out of glass. Well, you're going to have a maintenance issue then. Let's put a greenhouse up there. Yeah, that's going to be great for about 50 years, not 850 years. It's an attic, okay? Put steel trusses up. Put some kind of steel roof on, which is designed to replicate the appearance of the previous roof, and you're good, okay? You're good then. Everything's fine. Um, we, we don't need to go through these measures now to go into this whole modern or postmodern phase with this structure, which still is 850 years old, because then we look at, again, we have to look at this whole maintenance part that comes in. So these, these are all weird. And do you use LED lighting? Do you introduce that in or do you not introduce that in? I mean, all of these things which start to be kind of this mind bend. But as I've said, okay, so this whole thing is premature on introducing this whole architectural plan of we're going to get Notre Dame back. Uh, we're going to restore it. You have no idea what your abatement obligation is going to be for that lead. And there might have been more toxic chemicals to it. I don't know. But we know the lead, 500,000 pounds of lead that either melted and is inside of that facility, is in, embedded into some of the stones, um, is powdery all over, what that abatement is going to look like. And not only that, but your responsibility to the proximal area. And now do you have a fund that gets set up for the welfare of those impacted by lead in their soils. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perot.
Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.